verse 17 of 1 Corinthians. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. <laughs> because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. So that's pretty tough words right there. You guys are meeting. And it ain't to glorify God. It's a disaster. That's what I mean. It's chaos. He's going to tell them how. For in the first place, which usually means there's a second place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. Now that word uh, division, Greek word, I think schismata, is our idea of, of just being torn apart. You know, of a schism. Uh, it, it's, it's the idea really of just starting, not just to separate, but to rip. It carries a, a I think a, at least a part of violence to it, of pain. It, it's not a good separation. He says, and I, I believe some of that because I know how you are. Now, he's already talked about the divisions in the church. Remember, and we're going to see that as we go forward. Next week, we start dealing with spiritual gifts. And the whole reason they're going to deal with spiritual gifts in chapter 12, and he's going to deal with love in chapter 13, is because in chapter 14, when he gets to the charismatic gifts, he's going to point out there's a bunch of them think they're better than anybody else. And that's somewhat the problem here a little bit. But this, you know, it's, I find it interesting. They're always trying, you know, when you read about Corinthians and, you know, what's the problem and how the different groups that are split, there's so many different answers. It appears that there's a whole lot of splitting. There's a whole lot of groups being pitted against each other. The church has only been around four years, five years, and they're breaking all apart, which, is, which was typical of the Gentile pagan world. They come from a lot of different parts of paganism. That should not surprise us. Paul is bringing them together. Here's what he says. For there must also be factions among you or groups among you. That's it. He understands that's going to happen. So that with the result then of those who are approved may become evident among you. So he said there's going to be some groups. And, and listen, the, the fact that in the church there's different groups, I, I hate the word click. I have people say we don't need any clicks in our church. Well, of course we do. Of course we have social groups. There's nothing wrong with that. that, that that's never a problem. Why do we have small group ministry? You know why? So you will get in small little clicks and build relationships. We do that on purpose. I don't know. Seems like a smart thing to do. Why did Jesus, with all his followers, pick just 12 to be his apostles? I mean, put aside the number. Why did he pick a small group? So, I mean, it's, it's okay. And to some degree, you know, that, that can show the strength of a church. Uh, now, you, you, But you don't want one group thinking themselves superior to another. In fact, we encourage people to be a part of different types of groups. Be in a small group. Uh, be in a group that serves. Uh, maybe you sit with somebody in worship. We want to build those relationships, but we want you to build different types of relationships. So the fact that there's some differences, okay. By the way, the fact that there are different denominations, they're okay. I hear people say, well, all the denominations need to come together. Why? Why do I want to do that? I don't want to worship like the Episcopalians. I don't like worshiping with just five people. That's just, that's okay. None of the Episcopal people have come to our church because otherwise the church would close down. So. But I'm seriously, I, I, have, I, I love the fact that I have brothers and sisters in Christ that can go to a more formal style of worship. I love that. 
I think that's great. They love that. I, I get that. I like, I've got some brothers and sisters in Christ. They go down the street, and it gets, it gets a little wilder than I want it to be. That's okay. That's fantastic. I'm a, I, I tell people all the time, I'm a low church guy. I don't like a lot of formality. I don't want a bunch of ritual. I want us to sing with joy and, and, and exuberance and, and be open enough to do a few things without getting carried away. And when I come up and preach, just want to preach and we respond. And, and, and I like that. Everybody has a little different way. That's okay. Nothing wrong with that. So we, we need to be okay. So it's okay that there's some of that. But here's the problem. I'll, um, I'll be available in about 25 minutes. <laughs> he says, you come together, but therefore in verse 20, when you meet together, he says it's not for the Lord's Supper. He gets to the problem. It's not that you have groups, that you, you are splitting apart and it's happening at the Lord's Supper. In verse 21, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is <laughs> drunk. So here's the thing. Back in that day, you know, we, we take communion, Lord's Supper, we do it in the form of a worship service. That's typical. Back in the, it looks like the early church. What they would do is they would come together for meals. You know, you know we, we love our Baptists, we love our potlucks, that sort of stuff. But they would have what in other places is called a love feast. But they would just come together, and they would celebrate. And at the meal, they would take the Lord's Supper. That's what they would do. Now, we don't do it that way. That's okay. Um, but what would happen is, is that at the Lord's Supper, they would come and they would eat and they would celebrate, but they would eat a regular meal. And, of course, they drank wine back in that time. So they came together to eat. But what would happen is the wealthier people who had more leisure would get there early. And a lot of times they brought most of the food. They had the money. People who were a little bit poorer had to work longer. Slaves may not be able to get there till really late. So instead of waiting to do all this, the rich would just start eating all the food, and it would all be gone. And then they would drink, and then they would drink too much and be inebriated. And then the others would start showing up. There'd be no food for them. And then when they were going to take the Lord's Supper together, well, some of them were gluttons and drunks, and others were upset and frustrated, and there was no unity in the Lord's Supper. And it was just a disaster, completely. And so among all the other problems they had, here is this problem. It's a practical one. He says, why do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? He said, you can eat at another time if this is what's going to happen. Look what he says. Or do you, look at this, I'm in the American Standard, do you despise the church of God and shame or bring disgrace on those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this I will not praise you. He's saying this. You embarrass those who have nothing. You make them feel like a lesser part of the church. You have caused this huge rift to exist. To the practical, he now is going to give a theological understanding of the Lord's Supper. While the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper and we see it in the Gospels, normally we get our theology or our doctrine about the Lord's Supper from Paul. And uh, the reason is, he really explains it. So he says, let me clarify to you what the Lord's Supper is. And I'm going to come back to you. And I'm going to explain what you need to do to resolve this. So here's what he says. For I received from the Lord. And, and this, what I received, I received orally. This could mean he received from the Lord direct in a revelation from Jesus. Or it could mean that he got this from 
the other apostles or someone else who said, this is what it means. Either way, he says, I received from the Lord that which I delivered or gave over to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Now, the setting for the Last Supper was Passover. Paul doesn't go into a lot of details to Passover. Now, a lot of times when I read, you know, I, I read commentaries and others who try to explain all the different, what the setting, you know, what, where were they in the Passover meal that this happened or that happened. The church at Corinth was primarily Gentile. They didn't care about the Passover. They didn't care how the Jews celebrated the Passover. None of that was important to them. So Paul doesn't deal with all that. He just says, Jesus took bread. And then verse 24 says, he gave thanks for it. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this. <clears throat> in remembrance to me. Now, we understand this to be purely symbolic. That he took the bread and he symbolized that this is my body. Obviously, it wasn't his body. And, and you know, one of the reasons there are differences in denomination is over the Lord's Supper, communion. You know, uh, our Catholic friends think that this turned into the real body and blood of Christ. That does that transubstantiation. Uh, other mainline uh, Lutherans and others believe in uh, what we call consubstantiation, that it has the essence, you know, that something really happens. Others believe that there is, um, that it's more than symbol, that there's rich spiritual significance, that the presence of Christ is with us. And I, and I read all the time, a lot of commentators have said when you take communion, there is the presence of Christ. Right. I would argue that when we worship, there's the presence of Christ, period. But, you know, I'm not going to get into the semantics of that. We, in our church, believe in the symbolic nature of the elements because that's the tend to be what is there. This is my body. When you take it, remember me. Worship. Uh, <clears throat> the churches that had the Lord's Supper table, I grew up, you know, obviously a lot of churches I passed had the Lord's Supper table. This one had one until I got rid of it. <laughs> Put it in the back of the other building and when we moved out here, we forgot to move it with us. Joe was responsible for, and he forgot the Lord's Supper and it says, this do in remembrance of me, to remind us of what we're taking it for. And so the body of Christ, he died in our, and I say this, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I do a lot of time when, I, when we have the Lord's Supper. But the body is significant because it was broken. The body of Christ was broken. He died in our place. He died on our behalf. We believe in both the substitution of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ. The substitution is he died in our place. He took my place. The sacrifices, he died on my behalf. He took my sins upon him. That is symbolic in the taking of the bread. By the way, the good news is, I think I'll announce this to y'all. Y'all be the first. Come on Wednesday nights, you get the first to know. Uh, Troy went and purchased for us new Lord's Supper of the little things we take. We're still doing it that way. But the new one has the juice on one part, and you turn it over, there's the wafer. And the wafer is back to the old type of little pillow we used to take. It's that with an easy opening uh, lid. The problem is, I know what's going to happen. Some of you are going to open up the juice and turn it over and spill it all over the place. And it's not that you're going to spill the blood of Jesus. It's that you're going to get it on the furniture. I'm just like, oh, it's, not it's better. You know, we're not going back to the old way of doing it, which is not, not for a long time. So he says, in verse 25, in the same way he took the cup, also after supper, saying, uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, remembrance of me. 
So you take the blood. The cup, is, what's important about the cup is what it holds. The, the cup it signifies holding the blood of Christ. It's the blood of the test, new covenant. Now, the covenant is our new covenant with Christ. The old covenant, you know, there's multiple covenants in, in, in Scripture. I get that. But this was the, cult, the covenant that came from the Passover, the covenant with the people of Israel. That covenant is no longer in effect. There's a new one. You know, if there's something new, it replaced something old. So the old covenant is done. And all the people that think the old covenant is coming back with the Jews, according to the New Testament, you're wrong. You don't get that from the New Testament unless you just really mess up the New Testament. In fact, the book of Hebrews says the old covenant is done away with. It's obsolete. You know what the word obsolete means? It's useless. Period. The expiration date on that thing is done past. We have a new covenant because of the cross and the resurrection. In the blood of Christ which covers our sin. He says this then, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what I always point out in this, these verses, is you get two things. You get the fundamental importance of communion. It's worship and witness. Worship, remember me. Witness, you proclaim the Lord's death. The last time in December when we took communion together, took the Lord's Supper, I, I went into some detail about that. I do it quite often. Paul is saying, <laughs> the Lord's Supper is an important spiritual aspect, a doctrinal aspect. It is the picture of your salvation. In the picture of your salvation, you are proclaiming Jesus as Lord. You are remembering that he died on the cross for your sins and that his blood was shed and covered for you. He gave his life for you. And by the way, it also looks forward to the resurrection of Christ. So it's an act of worship. You're remembering, not just calling to mind, but movement. And you're also proclaiming. So, with that in mind then, he's going to come back and deal with the whole problem that they created in their divisions and how to resolve it. <laughs> and just about the time, I think, we got past complicated, difficult passage in 1 Corinthians. I remember there's another one coming up. It comes up here. And they, they just keep coming up in Corinthians. Therefore, he says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. The word therefore is always important. God, I know what that therefore is therefore in, in lieu of everything else. If you take of the Lord's Supper in a manner unworthy. Now, this, this is always the key. In a minute, we're going to look at examining yourself. What does it mean to be unworthy? And I've heard so many explanations, but let me just tell you this. It tends, I tend to think, based on my understanding of how Scripture works, if there was a problem in the church, and Paul is addressing that problem, and then he gives a doctrinal solution to that problem, and then he's telling them how the practical solution, the practical solution must in some way be connected to the problem they had. If the problem was a faction, a splitting, a, 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 a pulling apart of the relationship between Christians, then the word unworthy has to, to some degree, look back to that. Uh, you know, there are always some scholars that you read that 
when they say something, you say, okay, I'll go with that guy. And one of them, several of them for me, one of them is a guy named F.F. Bruce. You don't know about that name. It's important to me, but F.F. Bruce talks about it to me. You know about F.F. Bruce? Uh, Joe, are you too young to know F.F. Bruce? Good. I've taught you well when Pat won. He says this, this, this unworthy is looking back upon the lack of brotherly love in the church. He's saying the problem when you come and take the Lord's Supper is if you don't love one another, if you, have, if you have splits, you're unworthy to partake of it. Now, there are other, and I know there are other things, and I've heard so many explanations, and I get it, and I'm not going to say those aren't true. If there's sin in your life, okay, I got it. You know, if something, you know, if, you, if you've, whatever. If there's bitterness in your heart, okay. If you're mad at God, I got it. Primarily, he's saying this. If the people on this side are fighting with the people on that side, you've got no business taking the Lord's Supper. How can you say you're a follower of Christ when the body of Christ is split apart? You're taken in a manner that is not worthy of it. He says this, but a man and woman, don't get bent out of shape, must examine himself, and in so doing so, he is he, he to eat the bread and, the, and, the, and drink of the cup. So examine yourself. Now, if you're taking it in a manner of unworthy, he says you are guilty of the body and the blood. In other words, it means something like this. Jesus died for us, and we took what his death meant for our salvation. If you're coming in a manner that's unworthy, then really all you're doing is you're, in essence, you know, in essence, not literally, but in essence, you're just crucifying Christ all over again. You're, you're nullifying the effect of his salvation. You're saying his salvation hasn't changed your heart and your life because you're still a bitter, feuding people. It's, it's disgraceful to be that way. You're basically guilty of doing the same thing all over again, of going back to your old pagan way of life. He says, so you've got to examine yourself. You've got you to take a look at yourself. And when we do you know, the Lord's Supper... It helps to examine. Now I realize in, in the old way of doing it, when we pass the plate, it would give you time maybe to examine more than we do it now because you pick it up and do it kind of quickly. I don't know how much people examine. Mostly what people did is look at the pellet and think, you know, how distasteful is this going to be when I eat it? And you looked at the juice and you tried not to spill it. But in the course of observing communion, you need to take a good look at your life. Are you where the Lord wants you to be, especially in relationship to other believers and followers of Christ? I mean, how, how is your relationship with other Christians? Churches that are splitting apart probably shouldn't even take the Lord's Supper. Now, I know that sounds wrong as a Baptist pastor, uh, and I don't think I'd ever do that. You know, so we're not taking the Lord's Supper today because you guys are fighting. I don't think I'd do that. But I would use the Lord's Supper to drive that point home, hard, I mean hard. This just doesn't mean that if you're just struggling and you're like, you know, I'm upset with so-and-so, doesn't mean you can't take the Lord's Supper. Doesn't mean that, you know, you're in a disagreement or the community you're a part of can't quite agree on, you know, exactly what to do and you're still trying to work. It doesn't mean that. It means if in your life you have split apart from brother, brother, or sister in Christ. You better take a good hard look at your life. There's a serious, serious problem.
He goes on to talk about that problem. <laughs> For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. If you're at odds with another brother or sister in Christ and you're taking the Lord's Supper and thereby giving the false impression that you are right with God and man, you are incurring judgment upon yourself. You are asking for trouble. You are better off to say, I'm not going to take it right now because I'm still working through something with the brother or sister in Christ. I've got to work through that. You're, listen, I've been there. I've been as pastor having a hard time with a few folks, or they give me a hard time working, and it comes time to take communion, and, you know, and I'm the pastor and I'm giving it. And, and, you know, i got to take it. I can't say, well, today I'm not taking the Lord's Supper because I'm upset with this person over here, so I'm not going to do that, but I'll lead you in it. I can't do that. But I have had to really work through that process from time to time. Not, not since I've been here, but none of y'all, y'all are all good. But you've really got to think it through. Because here's why. Look what happens. If we judge rightly, excuse me, excuse me, in verse 30, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep or die. Now, what he's saying is, this is, this is hard. Some in that church in Corinth had become ill and died. In other words, they, God's judgment against them is seen in that physical suffering they've experienced. Because they have caused so much trouble in that church. Now, that's tough, I know. Because in our day and age, we don't, we don't process that that way. And as a rule, you know, I don't, I don't want to get up as a pastor and say, look, if you don't get it together, God's going to strike you dead. Some guys do that. I don't, I, don't, I don't think that's an effective communicating tool. But I do think we need to recognize that it, and I believe this with all my heart, if Christians continue to be at odds with one another, God may say, I'm tired of this mess. And he may end it himself. I have on more than one occasion seen members of my church who were difficult people pass away. In our church, be far better off after they put that last shovel of dirt over their coffin. And I'll be honest with you. When I did their funeral, when it was over, there was a part of me that said, thank you, Jesus. And I'm dead serious. Because they made church life so hard. Now, I'm never going to use that against someone. I'm never going to tell someone, watch out. <laughs> but in my mind, I've often said to myself, Lord, I don't ever want to put myself in a place where I'm causing so much trouble in the church, you just decide it's not worth keeping me around anymore. And I, and I know this, in our culture, that's not a popular kind of view. I know it's kind of tough, but there's really no other way around it. There's no other way around this passage than I know of. And Paul is pretty straightforward. Paul is never subtle, rarely subtle. Paul doesn't write things for you to try to figure it out the next day. He pretty much writes what he means. But if we are judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. If we have took care of that business, 
and you would have judged yourself and fixed the problem, even if you haven't resolved it yet, if you would at least fess up to it, we would not be judged. But we, when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that with the purpose or result, we will not be condemned along with the world. In other words, part of our spiritual life is the discipline. Discipline doesn't, discipline doesn't mean just punishment. When you discipline your kids, you're not just punishing them. That's not, it. That's not just what discipline is sometimes. But it, it's to instruct them. The idea of discipline is to disciple them, to bring them along. Part of our spiritual growth is when we struggle and we sin, there is a certain amount of discipline from the Lord that goes with us to get that right. Sometimes it's an inner torment. It's a lack of peace. Sometimes it's a brother or a sister coming up and saying, hey, man, David, this, this isn't right. You're struggling. What can I do to help you? But you're not in a good place. There are lots of ways that happens. We need to understand that is part of our Christian life. We don't like that. And, we, and you know, someone comes up and says, you know, David, you know, you seem to be struggling, like, whoa, whoa, judge not lest you be judged, man. That's what we want to do. Who are you to tell me? And I get that, but this is exactly what Paul is doing. He is telling that church at Corinth, you guys are messing up and you better get it fixed. And oh, by the way, if you think this is hitting on them, wait till you get to the next three chapters and he starts talking about spiritual gifts. This is so that we won't be condemned with the world. In other words, this discipline is evidence of our salvation. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, you wait for one another. So if you're hungry, let them eat at home so you're not to come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. He says there's more to this. I'll deal with them when I get there. Probably some specific people. He says, next time I come, I'll deal with that. Now, this, this is an unusual thing, because most, mostly what we just do is we take the Lord's Supper, we come to the doctrinal part, and we're gone. That's what I do, because I'm not going to get up this every time I do the Lord's Supper and talk about this. Then we need to look at the life of the church, and this is what's important. My experience has been that people who were a part of division in the church if they never repent of that division, at some point, God removes them from being involved in church life. In other words, they, they quit coming, something happens, they become bitter, they can blame the pastor, whoever. They never get their act together and repent. God has a way of making sure they don't keep hurting churches. I've, I, the last church when I was at Bridgeport, there were people who were a part of all that mess, and when it was over, they just left. So I'm through. Now, they left and said they were through, not because they were hurt so much, or some of that was that, but because they never recognized their responsibility to repent and say, I messed up. And in Bridgeport, in 10 years, it took me five years there of working through all that stuff and people leaving you know, because of me, whatever, and people leaving because the Lord <laughs> killed them off before that church ever began to turn around. And mo many people never repented. Before my time, for me, they never repented 
of what they did before I got there. And that church has never recovered. And I have a feeling, you know, I don't know what happens when you face God about some of that stuff. <laughs> I know when we face God, we go to heaven, everything's good, I got that. But to live with that burden of hurting a church, you don't want that, man. You don't want that. And I promise you as a pastor, it's the last thing I ever want is to hurt a church. I may hurt a few feelings along the way. I don't care about that much. I care a little bit. But I'm saying that's not the point that I'm worried about. I don't want to hurt the church. And you don't either. So on that happy note, we'll wait till next week when we get the spiritual gifts. And I'll tell you how to figure out your spiritual gifts and that'll be all happy. And by the way, most of you probably don't have the spiritual gift you think you have. If you think your spiritual gift is singing, you probably don't have it. <laughs> Except for those of you that sing. Julia's not counting you. Who else sings? Brian, well, you either. We'll see y'all later. <laughs>